Hi, it's Leslie Jane Seymour, and I'm here with CoveyCast, our podcast about women doing amazing things at this time in their life, and trying to also interview women who can give you pointers on how to make your life the best time of your life ever. And I am lucky enough to have right here a very good friend of mine from the publishing business, and Shoket, and she was the editor-in-chief of Seventeen Magazine, among other things that are kind of amazing. Anyway, we inhabited that same crazy, wacky world, and both of us escaped unscathed somewhat. <laughs> and now she has a wonderful book that you all should um, hear about, which is Living the Big Life. And it's all about, she just dug deep into this whole millennial culture. And I have two millennials. I love them dearly. They're the best. But boy, are they heck to take care of. They are really very difficult to employ. And she has all kinds of ways to dispel all those myths about millennials and how what I call um, the uh, boomer, the boomers and Xers together, the baby Xers, um, how we deal with them and how do you motivate them if you have them working for you. And what do you do if you wake up one day and this can happen? You find out you're working for a millennial and you're not exactly 20 yourself. So anyway, Anne, I want to welcome you to CoveyCast and I want to thank you for taking your time to spend with us. And we'll start by talking a little bit about you, about your history and how you grew up and how you got into the publishing business. Just so you know, 17 was my first internship as a kid when I was 17. Oh, is, oh, is that right? You know, I loved being at 17 exactly for stories like that, that there's not a woman alive who didn't find that 17 was meaningful. Um, and I took it as a real responsibility to make a magazine that was as meaningful to this generation, to millennial women, as it was to previous generations. So when you ask me about, you know, how did I get interested in millennials, I was just interested in young women. And it turns out that all of a sudden I turn around and here's an entire generation that grew up with me. We spent, you know, we spent all of these complicated years thinking about how you're going to become the woman that you're meant to be and how do you put the pieces of your life together. And I never understood why when you were 20 and your subscription to 17 runs out, why that um, like that conversation suddenly ends. And so, yes. and so that's what the, that's where the big life um, starts and comes from is how do you, um, when career and ambition and success are at the center of your life as they are for millennials, um, how do you put together the rest of the pieces of your life? But you can tell I'm their biggest cheerleader. I'm yes. I am. <laughs> and you're not a millennial, right? No, I am solidly Gen X. And actually, I love this question you asked about how I got started. And I love to talk about it because so often people think that um, you were like anointed or you magically found yourself in this, you know, in this in this big role. And like I was just a girl who grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia and drank beer in the woods with the punk rock kids. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I was smart and I paid attention. Um, but, uh, and I wanted, I always wanted to try something new. I always wanted to look out for a new experience and it, and maybe that was pretty like Gen X of me. I feel like we were a real generation of pioneers, 
But you know the. Um, I actually think the newness junkie thing is very editor editor editorness. We're always on to the next thing, finding the next thing, finding the next trend, right? My entire life is driven by fear of boredom. There's like nothing worse in the world than being bored. Oh, it's the worst. I once had Me a too. job, sort of a sort of an early job where I would take these really long lunches because the job was so boring and I didn't want to go back to my desk and do it. And I just, I, it was the, it was actually the worst job ever. And it, it was, um, that solidified for me that I needed to be engaged and hungry all the time. No, I think there's absolutely parallels between, um, between millennials and between Gen Xers. Like the, when I got out of college though, um, there was a terrible recession. Yes. And I, and I, and just like when millennials got out of college and there were no jobs except for we, rather than start our own businesses or, um, you know, like seek out advice from women in positions of power, like millennials do, we were the slackers, right? We like got jobs at coffee shops waiting for the recession to right size for the economy to right size. So um, I sort of love this hunger that millennials have to succeed and to, to change the rules of the game so it works for them. Um, so the news is I think it works for everybody. Yes. And and so how does how do millennials and boomers and Xers all get along? Because we know the old stereotype when you say that boomers and Xers look at millennials a lot as entitled and lazy. What are we not understanding about them? I mean, what's wonderful about your book is you really hear the voices of the millennials. If people want to really hear, you know, how they think. And, and I mean, it's a really great read for anybody who has to manage millennials. So you can really hear their voices and understand what they're saying when they're comfortable and not feeling put on the spot. I mean, so many times when I'm talking to my friends or other senior media executives, they'll say, ugh, millennials, what do you hate most about millennials? And then, you know, they'll tell me lazy, self-obsessed, selfie-obsessed, um, disloyal. And, you know, I actually think that they are game-changing rock star pioneers. And the, the, this, you know, they are millennial millennials are hungry and ambitious and want to move up and want to move ahead and they're not interested in leaning in or climbing a corporate ladder or even like going to an office like a regular everyday gray day office right they yeah you talk be... a lot about that in the in the book about how to not be in the office you say they want to be, have freedom from the office so what does that mean it's the ultimate status symbol you know when when you and i were coming up especially in our business, the ultimate status symbol was the shoes, right? The higher the shoes, yes. the more powerful you were, <laughs> right? Yes. And it's, like, and it's amazing to me, millennials really couldn't care less about shoes, right? Especially high heels. They're like, I am on the hustle. I'm on the go. I want to move. I got to move, literally move from meeting to meeting, from floor to floor, from place to place. And but the ultimate status symbol for them is this idea of access, right? Like first freedom, that you're free from the office, you're free to work wherever you want, when you want, in between social cycle classes, that you can get your work done, right? The, the MacBook Air has replaced the Manolo as the ultimate oh, status symbol I for like millennials. That. Very um, interesting. But then with all that freedom, you know, how are you going to brag? Obviously, there's still like the who's up, who's down, how are we bragging, right? And so millennials, rather than 
um, you know, velvet ropes or whatever it was that we that we had to suffer through. The brag for them is like, what parties or what events, what exclusive access do you have that you can show on Instagram with some ironic caption that is like a little bit of an eye roll, and yet at the same time, it's making everybody in your newsfeed completely jealous that you're at Cannes or that you're at Aspen Ideas or that you're um, that you're working from the Gulfy Coast, <laughs> wherever it is, right? That's the idea. That's the freedom from the office and then the brag that you have so much access that you're so important you can work from anywhere. Ah, you're so important that you can work from anywhere. Okay, I get that. Now, how do we get over the entitled part of that? Because doesn't that kind of feed into that? How do, how do we stop looking at them as like, oh my God, that's all you're interested in is the selfie. All you're interested in is making sure it's all about you. How do we, how do we stop looking at, at it that way? How do we understand what that means to them and how, you know, if you're in an office situation or a management situation, how do you use that? to the company's benefit and make it a win-win? So there's this moment that happens. You hire some young woman, a millennial employee, and she gets into her job and she starts her job and she thinks, oh my gosh, I'm never gonna figure this out. I'm totally, it's like whatever, they talk about imposter syndrome all the time, which I don't believe in, but we can talk about that another time. They say, I'm never gonna figure this out. I'm not right for this job. How did I luck into getting this job? Mm -hmm. Nine months Nine months later, that same young woman is like, I am rocking this job. I could do this with my eyes closed. Why is everybody around me moving so glacially slow? And I'm going to go ask for a raise. So she marches into her boss's office and she says, um, I, I am ready for a raise, a title change, a promotion. And the boss, who's on the other side of the table, is looking at this young woman's nine months of experience and is like, your experience is a blip in my right. career and right. you have to sit still and wait to get promoted and it's not in the budget and it's not in the strategic plan anyway and then sends this woman out of her office and that woman is crushed and thinks she has nowhere to go and so she leaves and so that moment that nine month tipping point is um something i tell there's two things right i tell the the gen x or the boomer boss give her something to do Tell uh -huh. her you hear her, you tell her you hear her, tell her that you want to make her job meaningful, that you will promote her, that you will move her up, that you will move her around. Don't, there's nothing, just like you and I are like living for fear of boredom, there's yes. nothing worse than fear of not moving ahead, right? That not, that you're not getting somewhere. So I'm a big fan of task forces and innovation think tanks and side projects and reach projects. And so on the other side, I tell these young women, do not leave your boss's office without a tick list of what you need to do to move up and move ahead. And, and if she tells you to sit still and wait, you should sit still and wait. But you should get a date at which you will discuss it again, right? Is it a year? Is it another six months? Is it 18 months? So that you know where you stand, right? There's nothing worse than sort of not knowing or not seeing it. And I also, but I also tell them, sit still and wait, but not for forever, right? That this is your opportunity to move up and move around. And it's something that's uncomfortable for us as the Gen Xers, right? There used to be, we used to really slam people for being job hoppers, right? You remember yes, the, like at the correct. beginning of the dot-com boom and everybody was hopping jobs every six months and it was, it was like, a, you wouldn't dare go into a human resources department with, you know, 
two jobs in a year on your resume, you'd have to come up with some crazy explanation for that. So to us, that moving around feels like um, a negative, but for there is so much opportunity, so many places for millennials to go, They and they wanna go. Um, so why I tell they, them they should go. Why are they so unable to stick to something? We look at it as just sit there and you know, pay your dues the way we did. Is that just old think? Why are they so impatient? What are they, why are they feeling this need to move? Is it, is it because they've been on fast moving, you know, phones and they've been on, you know, channel changers that, that spin around and get you, you know, a thousand channels all at once? Is it, I mean, is, is that simply what it is? Functional? I think the FOMO is real. I think that they're looking at their feeds and their friends and they're seeing that they're working on startups and side hustles and that they're getting promoted and everybody's doing something amazing and I have to do something amazing. That kind of one-upmanship. So it's outside pressure. Outside pressure brought on by seeing up close the fake news feeds of everybody else out there who's <laughs> pretending to move up really fast and all of that stuff. Well, I think, I think, yes, I think that emotion is real. That kind of FOMO is real. But at the same time, fear of missing you know, out, we need to say, I think that the, the, the idea of being loyal to a company ha is really disappearing. I agree. They, they don't feel like companies are loyal to them. So I why agree. should they be loyal to the company? I and, agree. You know, one of the things I hear from my friends all the time is that they say to me, how do I keep my millennial employees engaged and retained? Because, boy, it's a pain to have to bring new people in every nine months. Yes. So how so do I you do that? What? Give me some, like, three tips that any manager listening to this can walk away with tomorrow and do. It all comes down to one thing. You don't even need three. It's one. It's about meaning. How can you make your company meaningful to the employees? How can they feel like they're working on something that has a mission rather than just going to a job where they're getting a paycheck? And, you know, maybe you have the world's least mission-driven company, but you better set up some, um, you better set up some mission-driven projects for your millennial employees to be a part of, or better yet, let them run it. Right? You say to them, I'll give you the reins here. Set us up so that we can build something that's meaningful to the world, right? To other people. That's what keeps um, that's what keeps young women in their seats and keeps them driving forward. So much so that they're they're giving up money. I say I actually um, I hear this all the time from young women who tell me they're not getting paid enough and I but they love their job. My job is so meaningful to me, but I'm not getting paid. And so I actually think like they're choosing meaning over money in some ways, which I, I sometimes I want them to choose money. I want them to get well paid. So if they come in and they say it's nine months, they come in and they say, um, you know, I want to know when I'm going to move up again. I'm ready to go. I feel like I've mastered this whole thing. What does the boss say? Does she have two projects in her back pocket that are, you know, one is a, I mean, when you say meaning, do you have to figure out what's meaningful to that employee or do you mean meaning in terms of giving back or do you, what kind of meaning do you mean? Well, so for example, when I was at 17, certainly we were building a brand on meaning, right? We needed to be 
we need it to be important and relevant and in deep in our readers' lives. But I also wanted us to have an impact on the world. And so we, um, as an organization, we worked with um, some local high schools um, to help some struggling students create a school newspaper. And I let some of the younger employees lead that charge. And they, they met with these students once or twice a month, and they went to the school, and they set up um, outside of the office events. And um, it was really low impact for me. I was happy to do it and to make the introductions and to provide the resources. But um, it was deeply meaningful to the employees who could see you know, sometimes it's hard to see the impact of your work, and this was a way for them to have one-on-one -on -one human interaction with the people that they were impacting. And so that kind of a, um, that's what I mean by giving them something that's that they can do that's meaningful. Uh, whether it's something that's in line with your company or it's outside of your company or it's great for your clients. Um, I was just talking to um, a guy who runs PR, and he has a lot of restaurants and he was trying to think about what you know kind of side projects could he establish and i said let's come up with something that deals with hunger and get your get your young employees to work on a food drive or whatever it is but the but to find some thread of what you do that can be meaningful to your employees and let them lead it let them lead it okay and so you need to have something meaningful and then you started to say that you should also have side projects for them so one might be a meaningful thing, or is it always meaningful? I mean, could it be something else that your company needs that is not necessarily loaded with meaning? Well, so I actually believe in the side hustle secret to success, not just for millennials, but for everyone. Let's talk know. about what a side <laughs> hustle is, because people who are 40 plus are not necessarily going to have heard the word side hustle. It's all over your book. And when you talk to younger people, you definitely know what it is. But why don't you talk about it? Because I think it actually is very smart and leads into what I talk to my, uh, my members about a lot, which is having a reinvention package in your back pocket all along. So what is a side hustle in, in uh, millennial terms? So the side hustle is something you do outside of your job that's fulfilling a need, your job doesn't give you. So if you're in a if you're in a, in a company and you're not in charge, you need a side hustle where you're going to be in charge. If you're not feeling community in your company, you need a side hustle with a couple of friends or some women you respect so that you feel a sense of community. Or if or it's not about um, this is not about extra dollars in your pocket, right? Your job is what pays your is what pays your bills, but your side hustle pays you in self respect and. The side hustle, it's, it is the thing that you can't, we can't expect our jobs to be everything for at, at all. No one can. Our jobs are not our everything anymore. And so you need, there are things about you that you're not getting satisfied. And at every stage in your life, you need your side hustles. Eventually, your side hustle will sort of go in line with your main hustle. Um, you know, I have some side hustles now. I, um, I am at a advisor to um, a not-for-profit and I'm on the board of another organization and those are um, they both help 
women in disadvantaged situations. And uh, those are my side hustles. That's where I spend my time because it gives me great meaning. But when I was um, 25, I actually had a side hustle. Um, I had a day job at the American Lawyer Magazine where I was a fact checker and a reporter. Um, and by day I was sort of mid-level assistant editor type, but by night I was editor in chief of my own website. And I know oh, everybody yes. has, everybody has a that. website, but it was 1996. Um, and it was such a new idea. My website actually got written up in the New York times, which was sort of wow. a stunning thing at 25, but that was my side hustle. Right. And I incubated it on the side and I paid my writers in pizza and chili nights in my uh, in my very tiny, teeny, tiny apartment. And that was the thing that helped me realize that I wanted to be in charge, that I could run a media brand. That was, that was the signal to me. Um, and I think I it's, it. I think it's actually healthier in a weird way, um, to not expect your job to satisfy everything. I think that was a mistake that the baby Xers made, which was that, you know, we grew up thinking your job should be everything. And it can't be everything because it the very few jobs are that all encompassing and that multifaceted. So it makes a lot of sense. And I think it's a, probably a lot healthier as long as everybody agrees that that's okay. And right. do you have to worry about a side hustle when you, when you have it, if your boss finds out and your boss is a baby Xer? Why? Well, I, I mean, I think we need to educate the bosses that this is this is the way the world works now, right? That okay. You, that you and um, everybody needs everybody needs a side hustle. I'm not sure. I, you know, I think that if it's taking company resources and taking company time, that's probably not great. Um, right. But if it's giving your employees something ex that they're excited about and keeping them moving forward and something that they can bring back to you. Um, I think that's valuable. I, you think I tell young women to sit to tell their bosses, I learned I had this great experience and here's what I learned and I think this would be really relevant to X, Y, and Z account that we're working on. Yeah, I was wondering if a um, if a boss should be a you know, ask them what else you do that you're interested in and, you know, um, is there anything from your the things that you do on your own time that you might want to bring into the office here that would apply to what we're doing here? I think it sounds like a great idea. Yes. Interesting. That. Interesting. Okay. Now, what about the complete, you know, horror for a boomer or an Xer? You come in one day, this happens, your company's been bought or sold, and sitting across the desk from you is somebody your child's age, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> um, should you be packing up and resigning? Should you decide to stay on? Is this a unnavigable proposition or do you, can you make it work? And, and do you have any thoughts on how you would do that? So I actually think we should all be a little bit more millennial. And um, one of the things that's so different now, as opposed to when I was 25, when I was 25, I thought I knew everything. And that's now right. I am pretty clear there is a, that I still have a lot to learn. And, you know, there are things that, the thing that I actually think is the hardest, I try to live as millennially as I can. But one of the things that <laughs> I, I think like is that. really hard for Gen Xers and boomers is this idea of transparency, right? That it feels like TMI to us. We don't want to 
be honest or candid or sh share. It feels like oversharing, right, with the level of transparency. But Do you mean I, at I, the office being that, uh, being that transparent? Is that what you mean? Yeah, being that okay. transparent at the office. Um, but like what kind of things do we, would you say that we don't, that a baby Xer would not share that they should share? Well, I'm going to tell you because most of your um, audience is women, right? Yes. Okay. So let me just tell you this one thing that I found from my research that I, that I was shocked by. And yet everybody, all the young women told me I should get over myself. This is not worth being shocked over. It happens all the time. That, um, that a very common thing that happens among millennial women is they will call out when they get their period and what? not and it's fine i'm sure it happens all the time i'm sure plenty of women have called out sick when they get their period their cramps are terrible they feel like oh crap my. but but they will say it hey i'm not coming in today i'm going to take the day i'm having really terrible cramps and my jaw was on the floor when i uh when i heard that because i would never i worked in the most period friendly place in the entire world, but I never once discussed my period or any of my employees' periods with them. We didn't, it just didn't happen. And so, but apparently this is a new level of transparency and wow. a new level of female friendliness that, that, right, exactly, that we should just get on board with because what's bad about that? Let's be, let's be honest, we get okay. our period, sometimes you want to lie in bed with cramps. Well, maybe um, instead of M and M's on the on the boss's desk, we should have a bowl of ibuprofen. Maybe that'd probably be great. That'd probably be great. I went um, to. I, I was working my very first job before ibuprofen was available, and I used to have horrendous <laughs> cramps. I can remember now that you're saying that having to leave the office because literally my lips would go white and it was so bad. This was before you had ibuprofen. And then I'd be, somebody in the fashion business slipped me, started slipping me ibuprofen before it was out on the market. And I was like, oh my God, this is a miracle drug. What is it? But I bet you were like, I have a meeting. You oh, I like went so. to the, I went to the meeting, you know, with, with <laughs> practically giving labor. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So um, interesting. Okay. And I'll tell you, there's another bit of transparency, which I think is also really hard for, um, for Gen Xers and boomers. And it's hard for me to get my head around, but I think it's going to help us all is this idea of salary transparency. Oh, talk um, about that. Cause I believe that's, what's been holding us back, holding women back for so long is that. Nobody knows what everybody makes. That's a big problem. Starting point is zero. You cannot, you cannot figure out what you should be asking for if you don't know what's out there. And young women are much more candid with their salary. They're much more comfortable asking each other. They're, they will probably wow. volunteer the information over cocktails with other women at their level in their company. Um, and that's going to help us all. Now, it's a thing that uh, about... Maybe about a year ago, a woman who is my age, my my level, um, actually asked me to ballpark my salary for her, and I completely balked, and I completely regret it. I wish that I um, I had owned that lesson of transparency that I'm trying to learn from millennials. Um, because it's really hard, you know, we have spent our careers kind of carefully crafting an image and only letting out little bits of information about ourselves. And, um, that level of transparency is really hard, but I actually think it's going to get us all closer to 
equal pay to more um, equitable management. I think I think it's I think it's a transformative force. How will knowing each other's periods get us there? <laughs> I mean, are there some things we should not be transparent about? That's my know. only question. Yeah, we have to ask some. You have to ask somebody else. You got to ask somebody who's twenty-five. Like, what are the things that's off limits? <laughs> I don't think I don't think there's a ton of stuff that's off limits. Okay. I'm not sure what I'm not sure what we're keeping in secret anymore. Okay. Um, yeah, I am going there. We're gonna we're gonna go there to this new level of transparency together. Now, what about working for a millennial two two specific things what do you do is there any tricks and tips that would make it all work out i mean i think just like with any boss you would look for what is the thing about this person that's awesome and amazing and worth and inspiring um and like you know i think um should you try to be their parent should no. you try to be their friend? Should you try to be, I mean, how do you be an employee to somebody who's 25 years younger? Do you be a coach? Do you be a mentor? Do you have a sense of what they might respond to better? Um, I think they want respect and they want to be heard okay. and they want, uh, they want teamwork, and they don't want to think that they're that they um, don't know the right way. I think there's real danger in saying, "Well, I know better." Or we used to do it this way. One of the most compelling women I had um, that I interviewed for the book, you know, she was complaining that a very senior woman at her company was so slow and she couldn't understand why this woman was in her way and she just wished she could just have that woman's job because she was she was dragging everybody down and taking too long and i think there's i think um there's real danger in not um not showing them the respect and and you know if they think they can do it they're being put in a position to do it uh be on their team be on the team. Okay. Yeah. Now let's talk a little bit about um, work-life balance because you come out and say very flatly work-life balance that uh, our whole generation worked so hard to figure out and drove ourselves insane with, um, especially if you worked full-time like we did and had children and traveled and, I mean, all these crazy things. Um, why do you say that they, I'm guessing you're, uh, you're mirroring what they're saying is that work, they've figured out that work, work life balance is a sham. So well, I don't know about, if they figured it out. Actually, no. Okay. Are you saying that more to I them? I think it. I'm saying oh, okay. work life balance is a sham. You know, okay. here, here's what happened that was really strange. Um, for the last, for years, as I've been giving speeches women will always raise their hand, young women, and say, what about work-life balance? And I know, I, say, I get that too, I'm shocked. My mouth is always on the floor saying, are we still talking about that old thing? And, and so, and I say to them, what do you mean? Because like this idea that your work and your life should be in perfect balance, it just yes. kind of amplifies this anxiety and your life and it's also one thing that's so interesting is it's not just for when you have kids right like you want to have a life and yes. work when you are coming up in the world and you're working working all the time 
trying to live your life all the time, right? That it should really go together. I'm not even down for like work-life integration. I don't even think I know what that means. Yes. But like it, sh- it should feel like flow. That's the goal I tell young women, that it should feel like your work and your is your life and your life allows room for your work. And then it all goes together. And that the more we try to like be balanced, that it just there's this anxiety of like, will I be able to balance it all? The other thing I've been stunned by is that very young women who aren't even having two dates in a row are very anxious about what will happen to their career when they decide to have children. And this and the, and they're worried about will they be able to balance their career and their families and have both at the same time. And the truth is like they're not, they're so far away from being able to see how they will manage it, that it's just right. creating all this anxiety that um, we've given them around this idea that it is hard to do. It is hard to have a family, a big family ambition and a big career ambition. And um, they're, the anxiety keeps them, um, it really sabotages them. Mm. Is that one of the things that keeps them moving when they can't figure out what's going on in their job? Is that is that part of the anxiety, part of the sort of speed hustle that keeps them nine months? They've got to move. They got to move. They got to make it happen. Are they? Do you think that they're worrying about getting it all done before they have children? Not consciously, but unconsciously. I think sometimes, you know, there was a one young woman who um, I interviewed for the book who was in finance and. She went to an amazing school, graduated top of her class, super ambitious, gets to this big Wall Street job, and she finally gets addressed um, by a senior partner who's a woman. And the and the senior partner said to her, "Look," said to the, said to all the assembled young women, "Look, you need to get as senior as you can, as fast as you can, so that when you leave to have children, you'll have something to come back to." And I couldn't believe that this is the message that we're giving young, hungry, ambitious women to say, mm. you have to work harder because P.S. we pretty much expect that you're not going to come back to your job mm. or you're going to, you're going to have to leave your job to have children. And this young woman didn't even see how effed up that was. Like she mm. didn't see it. She thought this was just the reigning ethos of how women on wall street work. And wow. so she had, she, um, she had a real anxiety about how fast and how far can she go in her job so that she can even have a free moment to think about when she'll have children. Now, I don't think that's everywhere and I don't think that's everyone, but I think, Mm -hmm. um, I think that way of thinking about ambition and family is not uncommon. Mm. So why do millennials want to live a big life? What does that mean and is it realistic for everyone? Is that just another take on being famous for famous sake? Is this the Kim Kardashian life that they all aspire to on Instagram, which doesn't really exist for most people? Okay, so here, I'm so glad you asked me this because the big life is not about having it all. It's, it is about doing something that feels meaningful and big to you and about building a life on your own terms and getting rid of these old ideas, you know, having it all feel so dated. It's someone else's idea of what things should be like, you know, big house, hot husband, big job. And like that, young women couldn't care less about having all of those things. They, they want 
um, work that feels like a passion and a relationship that feels like a partnership and they want to build and pay they want to build this life on their own terms and carve their own path they don't want to follow the paths that their mothers or their bosses followed they see a different vision and that's what the big life is it's life on your own terms free from these ideas of what you should do ah okay so it's not about being famous when you say big it's not about famous it's not about fame it's not about money cool. Okay. It's about, it's about meaning. It's about finding okay. something meaningful. So then the, as we pull into the end here, um, what are the key connection points then for the baby Xers and the millennials? What are some good conversation starters and is mentoring a bridge? Because I run into an awful lot of late 20s. I was just at an event uh, last night with late 20-year-olds. And they are all asking for mentors. They are all seem to be so yeah. hungry for direction and hungry to have a discussion that's meaningful. And I'm just, I'm kind of blown away by our connection points in many ways because they are more serious. They are more, they, there's something there that does connect us, but I'm not quite sure. How do you start that conversation and what are they looking for? So you're right there. They, they are hungry for role models and mentors. They say to me all the time, I, I don't know um, who to look to for advice. And I, and I do think that it is because the life that they want is really different than the lives that we've lived and the, mm. the, the lives that we wanted when we were their age. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but I think, I actually think that we have so much to learn from millennials. Um, the one thing that, you know, the transparency um, is so important. And this idea of freedom, which we talked about briefly, freedom from the office, freedom from the rules, I think that is actually phenomenally helpful for uh, women who are not millennials. But the one, the one piece of the puzzle that I think um, I've been so rewarded in my research and um, inspired by young women is this idea of sisterhood that, uh -huh. um, that they've replaced this old idea of competition among women with collaboration and that they are, they have these warm groups rather than like, you know, cold networking with like Chardonnay in one hand and a stack of business cards in the other that we all had to suffer through. They have these warm groups of colleagues that are helping each other achieve and succeed. And I think it's something that I did not have um, coming up in the world. And I think what you're doing um, is so much about sisterhood and it's about what I'm building. The The Big Life has a um, community. I call them the badass babes. Right. Um, that, I saw that. These badass babes of all ages are coming together to help each other and share tips and tricks. And this piece, this sisterhood piece, I think is, um, it is being led by millennials, but it's so good for uh, Gen Xers and boomers As, at any moment of transition or growth or opportunity in your life to have a network of women who um, have your back. And I think that's, I, I've seen that um, a huge rise in that. And I think that's the connection point, um, women helping women achieve and succeed. And that's what we have to keep in mind as um, we're thinking about, you know, the generations. Yeah, no, well, it's funny. I'm seeing that as an, a newly minted entrepreneur, which is I am learning so much from, I have women in their 20s approaching me who are doing 
all kinds of amazing businesses. And, you know, they're, they're looking to me for, you know, overall, am I ever going to get there? How do I do it? How do I, how do I balance my life? How do I have children? How did you do that? And then I'm looking to them with, okay, how do I do MailChimp? Can, will yes. you give me a tutorial? I don't understand this thing. And it's very sweet. People are, you know, we set up meetings and we go and we sit down and we exchange our our information and it's completely lovely and it's very impressive. And I think, you know, I think it's a it's a great meeting point and I love that idea that that may be the connection point. So anything else you want to tell us, Anne, about The Big Life? And the name of her book is The Big Life, Embrace the Mess. Work on your side, work your side hustle, find a monumental relationship. This sounds like a lot, Anne. And mm. become the badass baby we're meant to be. Already, that's like, oh, that's a lot on a millennial plate there. Anything yes. else? Well, I think, the, I think the point of The Big Life, you know, um, there's a chapter called The Big Life for All which it's true, I wrote this book for millennial women because those are the women who grew up with me at 17 and we grew up together. And, but the, the things that I have learned from millennial women have been so inspiring and this idea that we all have an opportunity now to rewrite the rules for our own success, um, I think is, is a really intoxicating idea that um, this is not just the big life for millennials, but this is the big life for all. Very good. And I, and I do think, you know, I have to say that just looking at what's happened to the offices, um, again, as you leave corporate life and you start to get into, you know, places with these WeWork spaces, group working spaces, all this, as a, you know, baby Xer myself, I'm like, oh my God, we have to spend all our lives in these horrible cubicles and look mm -hmm. at these wonderful workspaces where people get together and sit at tables and talk to each other and they eat lunch together and it is such a different world and such a, a wonderful thing we all can learn from each other. So yes. Anne, thank you so much for your time. I so appreciate it. I know The Big Life is doing really, really well and everybody can find it online as well. And um, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you. I loved it. Thank you. Good. Thanks, Anne. Bye. Bye. And I want to thank you all for joining me at CoveyCast. And that was just a great interview with my good friend, Anne Shockett. And um, you can find us at podbean.com or iTunes. Remember, it's called CoveyCast. And I would love it if you would share it with everybody you know, share it with your daughters, share it with everybody. We really want to get the message of women helping women out there and it's an inspirational discussion of women who are living the most inspirational times of their lives and I hope you hear that in everybody's voices and I hope also that you can take home with you actual things to do and ways to handle your life in a different way from all this research and from these women who've lived these experiences that will apply to your life very directly that you can use. So thank you for, for joining CoveyCast. It's Leslie Jane Seymour. And again, tweet about us and also come and join CoveyClub.com. And we will be publishing our full schedule probably in July, but you can sign up now anyway. Put your name down and we will get back to you. So take care and thanks a lot. See you next week. <music>